it's a great time for me to turn on the recorder. <laughs> you got that? You got it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hey, you're listening to Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. I'm Katie Osuna, and I'm coming to you with a little bonus episode today with a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Dahlia. I hosted season two of the Garnish podcast, and now I mostly work on On the Line, a restaurant industry publication by Toast. Awesome. I'm super stoked. Me too. We started this way back in January of 2020. This was originally going to be part of the Copper and Heat season two, where we were talking about, you know, the financial and economic challenges of restaurants. And that kind of changed a little bit, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when everything else in the world changed, right? Like, (laughs) everything as we knew it changed in that time. Um, On a personal level, I was furloughed from April to July, so I was not working for those three months. And now I'm back, which is great. But, you know, the whole time that I was on furlough, and of course, since, I've just been keeping an eye on what's been happening in the restaurant industry and seeing just how everyone is reacting to all of these incredible challenges. Totally. I'm really glad that you're back. (laughs) And I mean, all of the flaws in the restaurant industry and a lot of the systemic wage issues that kind of come back to the minimum wage conversations that we were having, you know, all of these things have been exposed and a lot of folks are, are just starting to kind of recognize some of these issues or I guess pay attention to these issues more. And it kind of got me thinking when was the first moment that you started questioning the system of like wages and labor in the restaurant industry? Do you remember? I do. It was actually a big glass shattering moment for me. I was like 18-ish and working in my second restaurant kitchen. And I found that I was making a lot less than my coworkers that were in front of house. And like I was working crap. I was pretty much minimum wage, I think slightly more than that. And I appreciated that I knew what I would be making because I knew my hours every two weeks. So like it would change a little bit, but pretty much I knew what I was going to get. You know, my friends in front of house were making way more, but they didn't have that stability. Like a rainy day was literally a financial rainy day. When did you realize that this was a little weird, euphemistically (laughs) at best? (laughs) Yeah, right. I think when I was staging at Manresa, I was still in culinary school at the time. and. A chef instructor of mine told me, like, don't go do that. You should be getting paid for your labor. Like, that's ridiculous. And I was like, no, but I want to. And so I, like, completely ignored him and was like, no, I want to. And, like, I think I should be able to go and work for free and do this thing. Being very stubborn because that's what I do. It wasn't until later as I, like, saw more stages kind of come and go and, like, the reasons why they left that I started really questioning that and, you know, recognizing the privilege that I had to work for free for three months. And so that led me to learn more about some of the other issues. And I'd always come from a very privileged position and that like I have a partner who can support me in the Bay Area to have a job where either I worked for free or was working for like eleven fifty an hour. Like I was working for very little money. And so I just started, you know, thinking about that more and questioning that a lot more. Totally. I mean, I think for a lot of people who love restaurants but maybe haven't worked in one, the pandemic is sort of like the first time that they're noticing these things. And it's all kind of coming out in a way that a lot of people have been talking about for a long time. But people are kind of like, whoa, this is like pretty messed (laughs) up. 
Yeah. Yeah. People are just now kind of realizing this and it's like, welcome to the club. <laughs> like, you're not alone. There's so many people who are questioning this right now. And that's great. Like, it's really cool that a lot of people are. But for us to get to like any actual tangible change, we have to get from just thinking about all of this stuff to actually doing something about it. And so because I'm a sociology nerd, I like to put these kinds of things into frameworks. <laughs> just a nerd like that. I've, so I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, like about how individuals get from like point A to point B from, you know, thinking about things to actually doing something about it. It starts off with questioning the system, right? Like with what you and I kind of started like, oh, this is weird. This is messed up. And maybe right now a lot of people are in that zone because of COVID. After that questioning the system part, then you might move on to like learning more and researching. And I think that's where you and I are right now. And I think that's why we started this episode and started, you know, doing some of that research and talking to people about it. But after that comes the actual action steps. Maybe you start off with testing things for yourself or in your community or like with your friends in your kind of tiny sphere of influence. And then last, you'll try to actually contribute to the larger changes through activism. And obviously it's not like a linear thing because like, what is, mm -hmm. but like maybe you would oscillate between some of the different steps and, you know, that's, that's just the general idea, kind of what I've been thinking about as far as the, the framework. Yeah. No, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. And like, obviously you can apply that to any questioning of any system, right? Totally. And when it comes to these kinds of issues in the restaurant industry specifically, as we're looking to actually make tangible changes, we shouldn't be looking to the chefs and influencers who are like, getting to the conversation right now. Like, it's great that they're here and we need lots of people in this conversation, but they're not actually the leaders. We should be looking to the people who have moved past this initial stage and have been doing work on labor and wage issues in their restaurants and communities for years. Totally. And I mean, that's what this episode became to be about, because we talked to four different people for this episode that have been doing this work for a really long time. And I mean, most of these interviews were pre-pandemic. So I talked to Rima Seal, who is the chef and owner of Reams California, and they have two locations here in the Bay Area. And then I also talked to Petit Mystery, who is also a chef and a farmer here in the Bay Area. And I spoke with two folks from the program RAISE from the organization One Fair Wage. Shamila Ruiz is the director of RAISE, and Jeannie Chun is the director of engagement. So if we're going to kind of take a step back and learn about some of the labor and wage issues in the restaurant industry, clearly like Raise and One Fair Wage are really awesome organizations to go to because they've been doing this work for a long time. They've done a ton of research and gathered a lot of data on the issues. Yeah, this is why I wanted to talk to them. One Fair Wage... Rock United and RAISE are all related, but RAISE, which stands for Restaurants Advancing Industry Standards in Employment, is the High Road Employer Association of One Fair Wage. And One Fair Wage is a national coalition. It's a campaign and an organization seeking to lift millions of tipped and sub-minimum wage workers nationally out of poverty by requiring all employers to pay the full minimum wage with fair, non-discriminatory tips on top. That's from their website. 
they're rooting for a full living wage for all restaurant workers, basically. And we'll get to what that means in a little bit. But at Ray's, they talk a lot about the high road to profitability, which are the ways that restaurants can continue to thrive while still being great places to work. And Shamila and Jeannie both help to support the 800 restaurant owners that are in Ray's. They advocate for gender and racial equity, and they teach sustainable business models that champion living wages, basic benefits, fair promotion policies, and other employer practices, which are just amazing. Awesome. We talked a lot about the tipping system and how it's rooted in slavery and how it disproportionately hurts women, black people, and people of color. Basically, the tipping system sucks because of power imbalances. And you talked to Saru Jayaraman, who's the president for an earlier episode, right? Yep. Yep. And this is what she had to say about, you know, the the history of tipping. The notion of tipping came to the States in the 1850s when rich Americans started traveling to Europe and coming back and trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And it coincided with emancipation of slavery. And at emancipation, the restaurant lobby and one other industry, the Pullman Train Company, these two lobbies wanted to hire these two groups of black people and pay them nothing and have them live entirely on tips. And that was a total mutation of the original notion ocean of tipping, which was always intended to be an extra or bonus on top of a wage, the notion of a re- tips as wage replacement really is a direct legacy of slavery in this country. And that became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal, when everybody in the United States got a federal minimum wage for the first time, except for three groups of black workers, farm workers, domestic workers, and restaurant workers. Yeah, Shamila brought this up as well. And it's what one fair wage fights for. So I think keeping in mind the reasons why we talk about eliminating the tipped minimum wage is really important. It disproportionately affects working people of color. Over 60% of tipped workers are women. So it's also important to think minimum wage versus living wage. Living wage is another thing that One Fair Wage and Raise are fighting for. I think having a complete full living wage means being able to access daily things that are essential to life. So food, water, rent, childcare for your family if you have one and being able to live a comfortable life that's beyond just being able to meet your needs, but also be able to participate in things that are important to you as well that keep us whole as human beings. It's not just about raising wages, right? It's about uh, rectifying that power imbalance or at least making strides to shift the dialogue a little bit. And Letting folks know, you know, when you pay somebody a fraction of their worth, that contributes to their self-worth, right? Letting folks know that they are entitled to a full living wage and that they don't have to just rely on tips, but that their employer should be providing the full fair minimum wage that they're entitled to. I wanted to understand what a living wage means, because obviously we're at a point where the cost of living in many cities mean that minimum wage is just not a living wage, even $15 an hour in many cities isn't even close to enough. And it's also important to think sort of about labor generally, and I alluded to this earlier, about why we value certain types of jobs over others. Anyone who's worked in a restaurant knows how tough it is, no matter what role you have. And there's just no reason for restaurant workers to be struggling to make ends meet. And that's something that Jeannie, who we actually spoke to during the pandemic, mentioned as well. Now, what I'm really proud of of this generation is the ability for them to recognize their value and what they contribute. I mean, 
you know, the reason that restaurants can employ so many people is because we depend so much on our, our labor force. We need a lot of people to do the work, to get it done, you know, to run a restaurant. So a lot of workers are looking at wage models. They're looking at, you know, kind of sexual discrimination and harassment that they've seen and put up with and tolerated. They're looking at why is there no clear growth pathways for us to advance in our career? And even when we do advance, sometimes it's, you know, not for raises. And, and I know that restaurant owners struggle with that too, because of the broken tip system, you know, that we have in our in our industry. So I really also wanted to learn about the high road to profitability, which is something that Ray's talks about a lot. It's how restaurants can radically change how they operate to make things more equitable for all workers, financially speaking and otherwise. But the three things, tipping, value of labor and living wage, they're kind of the baselines for the work that Ray's and One Fair Wage do. And those three issues, it's kind of where a lot of people get started as well when they're thinking about these things. Totally. And it's funny that you say that because I think that's exactly what happened with both Reem and Preeti throughout their careers. And it led them to a lot of the really cool work that they're doing right now. Reem and Preeti both come from very different backgrounds. They bring a lot of different experience. So Reem actually started out in labor organizing and came to work in restaurants and in food because of, I mean, the really rampant inequality that we see. It was a long journey to get to Reem's, I think like seven or eight years of like looking at different models. I worked in the cooperative movement that had its problems. I left out and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be a business owner. I'll be my own boss. Preeti has been in the restaurant industry since 2002-2003 and worked in fine dining and then ran kitchens at the Day Young Museum in San Francisco and at Google, so like institutional cooking. And that's how they came to question the work environment before starting their own business. What I thought even seven years ago, what seemed like doable feels like almost immoral now. And maybe it was at the time and I'm fucking sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning, you know? I mean, that's what it comes down to is like, I, I'm unlearning a way that I was taught things were just supposed to be. And that's something that as I'm sort of financially modeling new projects that I'm working on, whether it's for other people or for myself in the next few years, the most important thing is that labor line. So they've really been testing different models at each of their restaurants and like working within their communities to take action on some of these labor and wage issues. And to do that, they've been addressing these three main issues. The first thing that they talked about was taking this idea of the traditional like 25 to 30 percent labor costs that everybody always talks about and basically just like getting rid of it, throwing it away. If you build it with a traditional 25 to 30 percent model from the beginning, it doesn't matter how much revenue you bring in, you're never going to change the structure overall. And I'm like modeling out, you know, for example, Jekyll and the Square, I'm just like, okay, yeah, my labor is going to be like 40, 45 percent. And that's just how it's going to be. And so I just have to look at everything else and how I'm going to manage that in order to make that work. When we started Reams, even in 2004, when I was a small farmer's market operation, I always knew that I wanted to be like a 40% labor line. I was just like, that's what I'm going to build around. 
everybody was telling like, me was, 25, 30 yeah. percent. And I was like, <laughs> I did the math and I was like, in all my years of organizing, like I did the calculations of like what it would take to even have a living wage and the living wage didn't even cut it. The next thing that they talked about a lot, so much more than we actually had room to put in the episode, is how they valued the labor of their employees, which is a really, really big one, like the folks from Ray said earlier. And a big part of that was playing with different tipping models. I feel like I've come really all the way 180 of just like, I just I just don't ever want to have, I mean, maybe I'll eat my words, but I honestly don't want to ever have a restaurant that has tips that the customers get to decide. Yeah. I just think that the system ultimately, it, it stems from racism, yeah. it's a slippery slope into a lot of sexism and the expectation of how women are supposed to appear and how they're supposed to interact, how they're supposed to smile and grin and bear it when they're treated poorly, when you know, people say shitty stuff to them and are gross. At Juhu, we had a traditional tip model from the very beginning, but we had tip pooling from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. One of the things that changed drastically was when there was a large hike in the minimum wage. The minimum wage went up uh, 35% and there's no tip credit in California. So the front of the house servers got a 35% raise. It didn't really affect the back of the house much because they were already at that level or higher. But what we decided to say to the servers is, hey, you're already really fine with minimum wage and the tips you get because y'all do pretty well for yourselves on a given night. I would say all in, they were probably making anywhere from 30 to $45 an hour. And so we want you to give more to the back of the house. So for me, I just felt like it was always this constant issue between the front and the back. You know, there were certain servers who I definitely felt the younger ones were much more generous with the back of the house. The older ones that have been doing this for 20 years were like, you know, they had all this philosophy of how, you know, this old school philosophy, they're not in the chain of service. And and the whole thing is if you do a traditional tip model, my wife and I, we couldn't actually physically give people the money. It is their money, it's the server's money. All we can do is say, this is our recommendation. We would like you to honor it. And, and you know, I would get some complaints once in a while where cooks would come up and be like, yeah, whenever this and such person works, our tips are always a little light. When mm-hmm. this person works, they're always a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to like go through everybody's paperwork and kind of the audit day. them. Yeah. yeah. And so like, I would never use this model again. Yeah. But when you have like, you know, a staff of like seven servers and three of them have been there for three years and this is what they're used to and they're fantastic at their job, it's really hard to like change that and steer that ship. So when we opened Navi, we decided to do 15% um, because it was order at the counter. We felt like 20 was going to be, you know, people would complain too much and 10 just felt like it would never get us where we wanted. And we wanted to do this because also like people tend to tip less when it's counter service. And so we wanted to just be like, this is, you have to pay this. And this was an interesting thing. We originally thought because we thought this was fair to us not being hourly workers, that, okay, so this person is like the lead line cook or they're the pizza person. They should maybe get more of the pie than someone who is a, you know, barista. We were kind of like tiering the roles of skill levels. And our employees actually told us they were like, it was actually the people who were getting paid more. They were like, why should I get more because I make pizza and the dishwasher I'm working right next to gets less. Also, we work right next to each other, so I'm showing them how to make pizza, and pretty soon they're going to be able to make pizza. And if I go to the bathroom or I'm on break, they're going to make the pizza. So why are they, I mean, you know, whatever. Do they get prorated for that 15 minutes I took my break? So we were like, okay, great, fantastic. Let's do that. (laughs) Um, So we just listened to them. 
the way that I've done it is just be really transparent. Everybody that comes within reams of what is the politic of reams and what we value, which means that like my GM is just not going to be paid as much. My top line is not going to be paid as much to be able to balance the budget. The, the other thing that I kind of share with my employees who come from more traditional restaurant backgrounds where the, the wage rates are dependent on the position, mm-hmm. we don't do that either. Like we have your base wage is based on your experience and then how much time you spend with the company. So if you have more experience being a dishwasher, then you'll maybe start at a different rate. You know, and that way it doesn't prevent the line cook can pick up a prep cook shift and not be worried about their wage changing, um, you know, based yeah. on the position. And people sort of respect every position. The last thing that they talked about a lot was their pricing structures and the struggles around getting customers on board. And Preeti talked about customer reactions when they opened Navi Kitchen with a 15% service charge. We got a lot of pushback from customers. Pretty much almost, I would say 95% of the customers that complained were cis white men of a certain means that look like they've probably never worked in food service (laughs) in their life. And even if they have, like the extra $2.50 was nothing to them. What we do at Reams is we try to like have a price variance that there's like a price point for everyone. So everybody feels welcome in my restaurant. Mm-hmm. I don't want to price my own community out of my restaurant either. So trying to figure out where's the balance. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's the folks who are too lazy to come to the restaurant who want to order their caviar with like a gajillion add-ons. I'm going to load those add-ons, you know, and hope that, you know, that'll help sort of balance it out for better or for worse. And it also like allows us to rely on our community as our ecosystem. And that's what we're trying, that's what at least what I'm trying to build is not something that's like transactional, you know, it's going to take a while. By every year, I see us getting more known in the neighborhood. I see more people who actually reflect the neighborhood we're in coming, as well as the people who see it as the destination spot. I think both can coexist. And in fact, you know, the ones with the more more means who should be able to pay for the true cost of food because they're part of the problem, (laughs) you know, that they should be able to pay it forward a little bit. Yeah, I think definitely the people who are the most vocal, as Preeti said, tend to be the ones with the most disposable income. So both Reem and Preeti have been testing different models and working within their communities to try and make these changes. But their work is so powerful because it goes beyond that, right? It's much bigger than them. And it becomes a bigger form of activism. And it means having some much bigger conversations. Right. And it's like in the framework we're talking about, right? It's like going beyond those initial stages. Pretty much all my neighbors were college educated, you know, professionals. Pretty much everyone is probably making at least 125000 a household or more. And I remember going to the block party. You know, they're good liberals and they're all like, why would you be against a minimum wage hike? And I was like, I'm not against it. (laughs) Let me explain something to you. First of all, of the like three people standing here, I'm the only one who works shoulder to shoulder with people who make minimum wage every single day. Okay, so I totally understand it. Do I want to see them get paid more? Hell yeah. But your bill's going to go up when you come to Juhu Beach Club. And are you going to come as often to my restaurant? Like, that's the issue I'm having is that is the consumer understanding that all of these wonderful things, whether it's grass-fed beef or paying your employees a living wage or being able to give them health care or child care, 
come at a cost. And so if you're going to come into my restaurant and say that it's overpriced and blah, 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 then, then we have a problem because you don't actually believe in a minimum wage increase like middle class person. You, you think you do in theory, but you're not thinking about what that, how that affects you. It all comes back down to the same issue, which is like, how much are people willing to pay for food? Uh, you know, how much are people willing to spend 12 and $15 in a cocktail and not bat an eyelash, but complain about a $11 sandwich? I mean, that's really what we're talking about because that's where the issue is. If we could charge what it actually costs to make the delicious food that we make mm-hmm. and value all of the pieces in that chain in order for that food to be made from the farmer to the delivery person to the cook and dishwasher, server, et cetera, then we wouldn't have this issue. You know, I mean, that's really one of the biggest pieces of it. I've been saying this for years. <laughs> I'm like, the, if, why doesn't the government just help us? Like, if they can give, if they can give Twitter a tax break, so simple, right? right? Like, if they can give Twitter a huge tax break, they could help small businesses by just doing some sort of subsidy for small business owners that are providing healthcare or childcare, et cetera, for their employees. Like, it just like it. It just doesn't make any sense to me why that is. People always tell me, like, how is, how is someone like you who, I think by theory I'm anti-capitalist, now operating within a capitalist system? How is someone who's trying to, like, change the industry working within the industry? It's kind of that, like, very classic question of are you changing the system from within or do you need to smash the system from the outside? And I haven't quite figured out all the answers to that question. So... Wage, labor issues are so complicated (laughs) and like it's not a one size fits all situation, right? We've really built this entire economic system on devaluing the work that hospitality folks do every day. And it's just now that folks at the top and customers are starting to question that. And maybe people are trying to learn more about why the system is the way it is, but it's people like Jeannie and Shamila and Reem and Preeti that have been really putting their necks on the line to test these different models and very, very vocally push better policies and better culture. And so as we move out of the pandemic, please, hopefully soon, into whatever's coming next, we should be looking to raise up these people and pass the mic and learn from the people that have just already been doing this and actively taking their lead. And the RAISE program is a good way for restaurant owners to take that next step and access a lot of support. Here's Shamila and Jeannie again. What gives me hope are restaurateurs who are doing things differently, who are opening up their books, who are eager to engage other restaurants in the conversation. It's obviously a lot a lot less scary of a undertaking when you find like-minded colleagues in the restaurant industry who are also committed to change and it it makes it a little bit more I guess accessible and less scary if you've got other folks who are you know willing to kind of stick their necks out and say no this current system doesn't work for me and it shouldn't work for you either. Yeah and I think the other thing is in this moment business owners as a whole have an opportunity to reset for these small operators. It's maybe something that they've always been thinking about, but never really had the opportunity to like 
slow down and implement and think through with their accountant and lawyer, like what is the process that to make this happen? And so one of the silver linings is that this COVID has given them the opportunity to stop or force them to stop and be like, how can I make this work? If you're a restaurant owner, we'd love to have you at Raise High Road Restaurants and I'm happy to discuss what membership look like. It's really simple. We just ask that you advocate for one fair wage in your municipality. We don't need you to change your business model necessarily because we understand that without policy change, it's really hard to do. So we ask that you advocate for one fair wage and we ask that you commit to um, racial equity in your workplace, which means implementing some of these best practices that we suggest. and having tough conversations around race. The email is there at highroadrestaurants.org. Joining something like Raise would be a great start. Or like Raymond Preeti, just think outside the box. Try different business models, and it might be a financial sacrifice for you as a business owner at first, but it shouldn't just be on women and people of color to be pushing these things forward. My fear on a on a very like macro political level is if we're out here on the fringes trying to do that, are we doing it fast enough on the other end, you know, this like three percent or this one percent shrinking, like consolidating all the resources. Mm-hmm. We're here on the fringes, but we're working at very slow pace. Right. Um, we're never gonna be able to catch up. So I'm just like counting on that to just implode on itself. Since the pandemic, both Raymond Preeti have actually been envisioning business models that buck the system even more, which is awesome. Preeti wants to start a farm restaurant that centers chefs of color and non-European cuisines through like pop-up events and chef residency programs. And Reem is actually working on building what she's calling the Workers Resilience Apprenticeship Program. It's kind of a precursor to profit sharing in the Reem's restaurants. So it's a year-long program of workshops and mediated discussions for workers to not only learn like the business side, but also folding in some of the political education and activism as well. So for both of them, it's about rethinking their own restaurants, but also building models that can be replicated in other places. I wrote a piece on this as I was like exiting my partnership with a restaurant group where I was like, okay, here's at the center where there's all these resources, and then here I am back on the fringes. And though the fringes are hard, like being able to create our own third spaces on our own terms feels like the the longer-term answer. You can't really smash the system from within. But people need to invest in those third spaces. You want those third spaces. Like, we can't just do it on our own, right? And so... Being able to think about this in the context of food sovereignty, right? Like, particularly communities of color, even in this country, have been able to have longstanding businesses. They've figured something out. <laughs> what would it What would it mean to, for us to like throw in our resources into that and to be able to scale that? What would our landscape look like? Dahlia, thank you so much for doing this with me. It was really fun. Thank you for having me. It's like been, it's just been so fun to get to know you through this weird project that we embarked on literally nine months ago. <laughs> but Jesus. we did it. We did it. Thank God. You want to do the outro with me? Yes. Here we go. 
Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Copper and Heat. We hope y'all are staying safe and healthy right now. A huge thank you to Jeannie and Shamila from Rays. And a huge thank you to Reem and Preeti for spending so much time with me in my teeny tiny office. We're putting a bunch of links in the show notes so that you can keep up with what One Fair Wage and Reem and Preeti are up to. We're also in the midst of season three production. So follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Copper and Heat to keep up to date on that. We'll be announcing a few more things in the next couple of weeks. This episode was produced by me, Katie Osuna. And me, Dahlia Snyderman. Sound design and editing by Ricardo Osuna. Story editing by Rachel Palmer. All of the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. Check out other tracks on Instagram and SoundCloud. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe and healthy out there, please. <laughs>